I need to tell you all that in the next few days, I am leaving uh, for um, points south and east and going to visit family and new family in uh, in South America and in on the East Coast. And I will next be back uh, uh, in, in, on Wednesday morning on December 28th. And then I'll be here on January 1st. And in the meantime, I will be online teaching a retreat on, I think, uh, Carlita can check this out. I think it's December 1st and 2nd with, um, uh, Donald Rothberg. Uh, Carlito, check it out. But it's a, it's an online two-day retreat, and uh, we'll both be uh, online. And I'll be in Ecuador, and he'll be wherever he'll be in Berkeley. Anyway, that's all of that. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a family of... Uh, school teachers and we all we had a lot of family I was my growing up years were during the years of World War II and my uncle my mother's sister was in the uh, in the army so my aunt and their two children were living in our house uh, as a way I think to economize my grandmother my widowed grandmother who lived with us throughout my childhood until she died uh, was living in my house. I, I guess I was thinking about them this morning uh, because it's coming up election day and uh, I really wanted to mention something about uh, uh, the upcoming elections because I remember, I can't remember an election that was more fraught with um, animosity and with... Uh, agitation than the one that's coming up now uh, it's um, if you're at all plugged into the internet uh, your internet is probably flooded as mine with daily pleas for supporting and it's a it's a tense time so one of the reasons that I'm bringing that up is um, it makes more problem it's the the difference of political opinions in households is one of the contemporary problems of a lot of people that I talk to that can't get together for Thanksgiving dinner with their family because their brother-in-law has other ideas about politics than they do. That never used to happen when I was growing up. I think most of all because my family all voted the same way. But um, I, I see what's happening around and people are estranged from their brothers and sisters and cousins because of uh, an estrangement that's been hyperventilated by current events. Um, so I, I, I wanted to talk about people have different views. Not that you anybody should change their views, but how to hold the idea that people have different views. I also wanted to talk about how people get certain views. My, um, my friend Sharon Salzberg, used to say when she was teaching about the Four Noble Truths, 
she said that one of the things what happens in our life is something happens uh someone phones and says something or you meet someone and they say something or you get a letter that startles you some some new piece of action happens and your mind uh responds with alarm or aversion or desire or whatever that then create an impulse to act on it to uh, to strike back or to say something or to contest it or to get it if it's something that you need and really the thing about um uh dharma practice i I, i've been thinking for some years is um what if the only uh if the only dharma instruction was wait W-A-I-T. Uh, I think I, I think I learned this from Sharon. I can't remember. One of my colleagues said, if you get upset about somebody, what somebody says, or you get ready to intervene in some kind of a conversation, you could think to yourself, why am I talking? What am I saying? Wait, wait is the acronym for why am I talking? Is what I'm about to say uh, a fruitful addition to retaining noble silence is how the Buddha would have said it. So all iterations of think it over, the mind gets startled and is going to do something and maybe think it over. And that caused me to think about the ha- having views. It was Sharon who said something happens and we have a view oh, this is terrible because since this happened, it definitely means that's going to happen, that, 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 that. She said the trouble is that we something happens and then we have a response to it and we editorialize about it. We say, oh, because of this, it's going to be that, 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 and it'll be terrible. Does that make sense to you? And the mind becomes contentious. So I thought about the, the way that all of our minds... Um, respond from a, a really an egocentric point of view all the time. Is this good or not good for me? I wasn't going to tell the story, but I will. Because um, I think it's a sort of a sweet story. My uh, grandparents, my, my uh, mother's mother and father and my father's mother, all of whom lived quite nearby and had a lot to do with my growing up years. And my parents and I all went to the polls on uh, on election day. In those days, there were no mail-in ballots. There were no early voting, later voting. This is 1944, when I was eight years old. Everybody walked to the poll, and they everybody went. It was, uh, you know, three or four streets over, like a little parade of a whole family marching to the polls. And I remember for years thinking about it with uh, with pleasure because all of my grandparents were born in Europe and came to the United States. My father was born in Poland and came as a nine-year-old child. All of my grandparents were uh, illiterate in any language. They could not read. They hadn't gone to school. Uh, and my parents, because education was free through college in those days, especially in New York City, there was good education. They went to school and they got jobs. And um, 
But I remember they were proud of themselves because my grandparents, because they had managed to pass a literacy exam to get their citizenship. I don't know how they did that because they couldn't read, but they could talk uh, enough. So they passed the literacy test and um, they could vote even though they couldn't read the ballot because my parents taught them about the um, voting machines. I remember that we had um, voting machines with levers in New York City so that they could understand that you counted down to the second line and then you put all those vote, those levers down because the second line was always the Democratic Party. And my parents were um, always progressive voters. I prefer to think about it as not Democrats and Republicans, but it was more the progressive end of politics. And certainly in 44 and in 48 and then 1940 even, which I don't remember, uh, in 40 and 44, Franklin Roosevelt was running for a third and a fourth term. And all of my family was voting for him. And, uh, so they, 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 they got tutored and you go in and you go to the second line and then do down all those little levers. And, uh, then you had to vote for the propositions, which the propositions are still hard now. You don't know that you read it wrong and accidentally vote for the wrong thing because they're so peculiarly worded. But they understood, they could figure out, because I guess they had sample ballots, a proposition, and you could only vote yes or no. Um, and they, you, I guess they took with them a little piece of paper that said the number and whether yes or no. And I remember my parents diligently trying to explain to them which of the propositions uh, was what they wanted to vote on, Proposition 1 and 2 and 3. And they would try to explain to my grandparents what the propositions were about. And uh, so I learned the following term from them, which I, it's dear in a certain way. They would, they, my parents would be trying to explain what was proposition three about. And my grandparents would say, listen, that's just too complicated. Tell me, is it good or bad for the Jews? And that was on how they made their decision. So if it, and it remained in my family, I see a lot of people doing like that. It remained in my family, a kind of a phrase that you, that you said when you didn't understand something, you say, just tell me, is it good or bad for the Jews? Is it, how does it work for me and for us? And that's how our minds work. Is it good or bad for us? And everybody votes because they think this is good or bad for us. They get their decisions. What's different this year is that the, the opinions that come, the editorials come along, that a person who has a different opinion is a person that I can't possibly like. A person who has a different opinion is my enemy in some way. And it's very painful to me anyway to see what's going on. So I thought about talking about the editorials in, in my mind, that if I think about how come I vote the way I do. I vote the way I do. Uh, and I have friends and even relatives, these cousins, those cousins, those cousins, people in my family who vote more conservatively than I do. I like them very much. We don't talk politics together. I like 
everything about them, but I disagree with their political points of view. We don't talk about it. How come sometimes that makes rifts? What's in the mind that's going on? I thought that was an important thing to bring up because everybody, I think, is fraught with emails and um, newsreels and who said what about whom. I also am interested in how we build a mind that builds up an understanding of the world based on the editorials we hear spoken in our families as we grow up. And really where I am going with this whole thing this morning is I want a mind that's congenial. I want, I want a mind that, that uh, is aware of what's going on and keeps its priorities kind. I thought the best way to do that I actually want to tell you a lot of Buddhist stories this morning. And I have in mind a participatory morning because I'll tell you halves of stories. And you tell me, I'm going to ask you to tell me what's the uh, lesson in this story. But I'm going to read you this. I don't I don't know if I've ever done this. I'm going to read you the first story in a book called Happiness is an Inside Job written by Sylvia Borstein. But I <laughs> I don't think I've ever done it, read from my own book. I don't think so. But this is a good story. They're all good stories. I was sitting at my computer writing when my friend Martha called to say that her brother Jack's illness had just taken a turn for the much worse. I felt sad, mostly for Martha, whom I knew well, but also for her brother, a man I'd met, a person whose family I knew. I said what I hoped were consoling words. As soon as our conversation ended, I went back to writing, eager to resume, because I'd had what I thought was a good idea, just as the phone had rung. Then I realized that I'd forgotten the point I was about to make, and I heard myself think, so inconvenient of Jack to get worse just today. I felt my heart wince at that thought. Then I stopped. I turned off the computer. I lit a candle. I sat in my rocking chair and looked out the window. I thought about Jack and his children and grandchildren. I thought about Martha in her 60s, who often described herself as Jack's baby sister, and about Martha's mother, almost 90, facing the loss of her son. Pretty soon, I found myself thinking about other people who I knew were suffering. I thought good wishes for them individually for as long as I could keep up. And then collectively, when I realized my list was enormous, I said the prayer phrases that are part of ritual meta practice, which end with may all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful and come to the end of suffering. I felt better. I looked at the few late summer flowers still blooming on my deck outside my window. I thought about how fragile all life is and how quickly it passes. I was glad to be alive. I had thought about my family all on that day well, and I felt fortunate. I thought about my friends who were well and prayed that they would thrive. I wished everyone I could think of well. At some point, I had the thought, go back and finish the writing. But no impulse arose in me to move. I felt peaceful and very happy. 
I love it that what my heart wants most to do is to console or encourage or appreciate. It feels better in relationship. I imagine it ever on the lookout for an object, a frightened friend, my own chagrin self, the world around me, that it can connect with. And I love it that it reminds me, it tells me, turn off the computer, light a candle, pay attention, even when, perhaps especially when, I seem not to be listening. I feel delighted to have been born into what the Buddha called this realm of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, with mind and heart primed to respond out of wisdom and out of natural benevolence, natural benevolence with kindness. I thought, this is the best way to live. I also thought how, about how easily my mind forgets what it knows, how easily it falls into confusion and out of caring connection. So I decided to write this book, not about avoiding confusion because we can't, but about becoming unconfused and restoring connection because it really is the best way to live. So thank you for listening. I I don't mind. Re- I, I don't normally read my own stuff, it seems like. I don't know. But I felt good reading that because that's a good thing to say. Because that, after 40 years of Dharma practice, remains what I think I know for sure, that my mind, when it's in a caring connection with me, with my family, with the world, with everything, that's the best mind to have. I don't have to like everybody, and I don't have to like what's going on. And I can actually be aware that the world is imperiled between the planet warming and the COVID and the variations and the wars and uh, political perfidy and everything that's going on. I don't have to like it, but I have to care about it because when I care and I am in caring connection, I feel alive. And otherwise I feel contracted and separated. And I actually think that that's the whole point of paying attention. I'm more and more, I'm thinking about, I don't know if I'll ever write another book, but I had the thought recently, maybe I should just write stories, not with explanations. Like people sometimes say, tell the Mohammed story or tell the woman on the beach in Guaymas or tell about uh, what's another one tell about the taxi ride in New York to the airport in a snowstorm people remember stories more than they remember what's the lesson in the stories that's a, we read the same Bible over and over and over again. In Judaism, Jews have just finished the end of Deuteronomy, and they're actually up to Noah's Ark again. And would they just read it again and again and again? And you know the story, but each time you read it, the the uh, injunction is, "What else do you understand from it?" 
Christians as well read the scriptures, something from the Hebrew Bible, something, something from the Gospels every week. It's the same Gospels, the same Hebrew Bible. But the lesson that you get by looking again and looking more deeply. So I thought I'd tell a story. You know, the Buddhist stories often begin by saying, um, thus, have I, thus have I heard once in a Jetta grove near Banaras, the Buddha sat down and said, and then tells a story. So I'll, t- I'll tell you a bit, a bit of a story, and then I'm going to ask you, uh, what's, what did you learn from listening to this story? So really think about it, because this is only going to work if you have an answer. Do you want to meditate first, or do you want to try it out? Who wants to meditate first, or who wants to try it out? I'll try it out. Okay, so we'll try it out. Once upon a time, a woman came to see the Buddha, carrying her child in her arms, and the child was dead. And she came and said, my child has died. And I brought him to you because people say, you're a miracle worker. And I'd like you to bring him back to life. And the Buddha said, I'll do that. Uh, You'll have to go and bring me a mustard seed from, uh, you have to go through the village, bring me a mustard seed from um, a home in which no one has ever died. Moon goes off and comes back and bows to the Buddha and becomes his disciple. So... What's the moral? What's the lesson that you learn in that? So now I want you to push the respond button. I know that you know. <laughs> so try, okay, there's Rosie. Well, life is suffering and that everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. What else? That's not, not right. I just... See how other no, it's exactly. But what else, Joan? Every everybody dies and everybody grieves. Everybody dies and everybody grieves. Come on, what else? Red. That suffering is universal, and once you understand that, you don't feel sorry for yourself because you know it happens to everyone, and you are not alone. It is. You just kind of have to go into a state of grace because the person next to you, behind you, in front of you are all are all suffering from grief as well. There you go. Thank you very, very much. And Brahmini was going to say something. Yes, Brahm, go ahead. Hi, I don't think it's really different. I think we're all saying the same thing, but I, I feel about, I feel the interconnection of each other, you know, just like me and that I'm not separate from anyone else, whether it's a joy or a sorrow, that we're all the same really at the essence. Yeah. And our hearts. Thank you very much. And there's Ellen. To me, it also, just to add to it, 
it says that the most peace that we can find is by accepting our mortal fate, not by struggling against it. And that's a very personal lesson for me right now because I've been struggling like crazy with the issues of death and old age. Thank you very much, Helen. Because then what I learned from what you just said, if you want to really carry this along, each one of them keeps unfolding with more, is you just said something that resonates very much with me. Uh, and I'm sure with a lot of other people here, because among other things, uh, uh, most people know that my husband died last year and at a at a very final old age of 89 and but nevertheless and everybody and so everybody sees that everybody suffers and uh and it resonates in them because they, they had some kind of similar experience that something that was wasn't here anymore what else so and from that i would say what's a bigger lesson maybe what the Buddha said is that things keep changing. Things keep changing. It used to be that that person was here and now they're not here. And that the biggest thing that human beings have to do is they have to be used to the fact that in with whatever it is, one's youth, one's vitality, one's companions, one's family, what we used to treasure, we often don't have anymore. Let's try one more story. Here's a story. I think if we tell enough stories, then we'll have we'll be able to see they all come down to uh, one or two central things that the Buddha said. Let's try this story. Um, I was looking out my window right here, so I'm going to go back from the time of the Buddha to the time of here in California. I was looking at my window, and the way my window is situated, oh, you can see there, you see my windowsill. My house is situated at the top of a hill. So when I sit here, I can see just over the edge and down into the garden. I can see there are a lot of oak trees, and there are long uh, areas in the garden that once upon a time flourished with different kinds of um flowering plants, not so much now because of the drought over all the years, but there's a whole bed of agapanthus that's a, a um, very beautiful flowering bulb that replants itself every year. So it takes a certain part of the year for them to get warmed up in the spring, and then they break out in most beautiful flowers. And I was sitting like this and looking out, and I could see just the top of the agapanthus row down there and that had just come into bloom because it was spring. And I could also see the top of a deer more moving down my row of agapanthus, methodically chomping off the top of each one. I'm looking as a chomp, chomp, chomp. Chomp. I waited all year for my agapanthus to bloom. It bloomed, and here was this deer marching along methodically, chomping off the top. And I stood up from my seat that I'm in now, 
and walked the two steps over to the window so I could see out and over and down. And I saw that she had a baby deer with her. So what happened? She had a baby deer and I realized she's, you know, she's a, she's a nursing mother. All of a sudden, and the baby deer is so cute. And all of a sudden I thought, help yourself. You're hungry. You need some agapanthus to eat. Go ahead and help yourself. And I, I realize that now that I'm telling you the story, I see a number of people smile. You get it, right? I thought to myself, here's my mind, not only react to get out of my agapanthus, but oh, help yourself. Look, you need that. And what I noticed is not only that they were different feelings, but that the second feeling was way different. That the second feeling was a very good feeling of sharing, of connectedness, of I've also fed babies, help yourself to my agapanthus. And that it's not only a, a, a different feeling, it's a pleasant feeling. And in the course of one minute, really, or one, one stand up and you see. So what would you say is the lesson from that, from that, from that story? What's the lesson? Jamal. Uh, yeah, this seems like a similar lesson to the story that you read from your book. It's really about, you know, the presence of compassion and a concern for others. If that's present in your thinking, in your mind, then, you know, it feels good. And when it's absent, you notice it. You know, if it's if you're self-centered and, you know, you're just thinking, then uh it feels much different than having that sense of compassion. Mm-hmm. And then the specifically the much different is much better. All, yeah. all of a sudden you feel connected and it doesn't have to do with being a mother. You would also feel, oh, look at that deer feeding its baby and how much better it feels. Thank you very, very much. What else? Somebody want to add to that description? Oh, Greg, go, go, Greg. Sure. I, I um, think it's all a matter of perspective. Um, thing that comes to mind to me is they're not my agapanthus. <laughs> <laughs> <That. laughs> so from that, if we want to make it, if we wanted to spread it out to be a Buddha's truth, we could say the Buddha said that feeling attached to something as if you own it is the root of suffering. <laughs> so thank you very much. Okay, go Diane. Very similar. I was just thinking about how, you know, the deer wasn't doing this to me. And and so many of our reactions when something comes up is someone is doing something to me. And this deer was completely independent of thinking what it was going to be doing with you. This was just a thing that happened and I didn't know her backstory. And even if I did know her backstory, it still was not against me. It was just part of everything that's going on. Thank you very much. I love it. Uh, Go Susie and Marty. Thank you for calling on us, Sylvia. The thinking that I was um, getting from your beautiful story was a matter of perspective. 
And when you enlarge into your perspective or your view by peeking a little further over the hill, you were gathering more information. And I think if, we're, um, if we had all the information, we would have all the love and compassion. Bravo, I think that's a lovely way to say it. We've all been saying variations of it. If we knew what was really the story, we, uh, we would be open with compassion. If we knew what was really the story. So let's, let's try another story. Um, it's like wait to get, wait and gather more information, get a grip. Uh, years ago, I said, I think maybe that'll be, that, those will be the two most important, um, uh, Dharma practice phrases instead of something more, uh, elevated in speech. We'd say, wait a minute, get a grip. What's really happening? <laughs> How about, I'm thinking, I got a list of stories here. Okay, this is a this is a, a Zen story. The the monk is walking along, um, uh, a lo- walking along a side, alongside a jungle and meditated and what in a meditative mood walking along, and all of a sudden uh, he hears footsteps behind him and looks around, and there's a tiger walking behind him, and. Uh, Understandably, he picks up his pace, and um, the tiger picks up his pace. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I've never, in all the years of telling this story, I realized I've never said the tiger picks up her pace. I just realized that, so I don't know what that means, but tiger picks up his pace, and uh, the monk picks up the pace, and they're both running. And the monk comes to the edge of a precipice, the edge of a cliff. And he's got no place else to go. So he jumps off the cliff and grabs onto a vine that's hanging on the side of the cliff. And he's grasping onto the vine. And he looks up and the tiger is looking down over the cliff and growling at him. And he looks down and at the bottom of the cliff, there's... um, uh, rushing water, river at the bottom, and rocks, and it's a far way down. So he's really grasping onto that vine. While he's doing that, a uh, mouse comes out from a crack in the wall and uh, starts to gnaw on the vine. And while that's happening... He notices over here on the other side of him that there's another tiny plant that's coming out of the cliff, of a a cleft in the cliff. And it's a strawberry plant and it's got one strawberry on it. And it's ripe and he picks a strawberry and he puts it in his mouth. And he says, this strawberry is delicious. Okay. What's a story on that? Think, 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 think. Jeff is going to talk. Well, let's wait so people can think. Me also, because I want to think of the various levels there. Okay, somebody else. Think, think, think. Okay, Jeff, you start. 
that is one of my <clears throat> that's in that's right in the top ten of my all time hit list of uh, great Buddhist stories because if you look at it for a moment, it is a a wonderful analogy for each moment of the of our lives. We're in constant peril. Before I finish this sentence, I could be very likely, given my diet and lack of exercise, pass into another reality. But I'm still enjoying this moment while I'm in it, in spite of the gnawing, in spite of the rocks, in spite of the tiger. Ah, this is a very sweet strawberry. And this and the other stories you were told seem to revolve around the misapprehension of, of, uh, of what we see before us. We bring a bunch of thought uh, and prejudice and and sort of delusion to and to the present moment and forget that this is a precious, precious gift. This moment, just now, um, something. If I remember that twice a day, I have twice as much life to live. Somebody else, thank you. I really love that. Uh, right this minute. Well, I, right this minute. Oh, Vanessa, go. Hi, I just I just wanted to say as a New Yorker, when I was listening to your story, and I hadn't heard this story before, and um, as you mentioned, um, he saw this beautiful strawberry. My thought went, oh, he's going to give the strawberry to the mouse and save himself. <laughs> because, you know, unlike the previous speaker, I was looking for more ways to involve my brain in my um, existence versus just enjoying the strawberry. Um, so <laughs> I love that. you. I love that you did that, Vanessa. Uh, we I used that particular story once. Uh, a, a long time ago, maybe some people were in the class at that time, that particular story, because I also feel, as Jeff brought up, that we are always hanging on a vine. The whole life is hanging on a vine. Every time, not even, every time that you, um, every time that you uh, are walking alongside a jungle, but at every time, any minute of any time, I used to say I have complete control over my, you know, right this minute. But it could be an earthquake. There was an earthquake the other day in California. And uh, we didn't feel it so much in Marin. But my granddaughter uh, texted from San Jose, which is maybe 50 miles away from here. Not that far. She said, did you just feel that? I didn't. But uh, her uh, shake alarm uh, feature on her phone, which you can have in California, tells you 15 seconds before uh, a tremor is, in a, it, it takes about 15 seconds. It picks up shaking 15 seconds before the shake happens about. And so her, uh, her she was in a class and her phone lit up and said, take cover, earthquake. So, she, and she said, I did, you know, I got under the, it says get under the desk. 
Well, you know that you're supposed to get under the desk. She said, nobody else did. They just looked at their watch. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But <laughs> they looked at their, I think, I think, I don't know. Would you have gone, if you had gotten an alarm that said take cover, would you take cover? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. So why did all these people just look at their iPhone and stay there? I don't know. That's another whole story. But uh, the, the idea that everybody is always imperiled, like people say, I'm a kind of person that likes to be in control of all situations. We're not in control of any situation. I get to control what I eat for lunch today if we don't have an earthquake between now and lunch. Or I don't have a heart attack between now and lunch or something. But you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, you could say, well, what does this have to do with Buddhism? Because the Buddha said everything changes. The Buddha said suffering is the anxiety in the mind uh, about the fact that everything changes and we really can't control things. And the third thing that, uh, third generic kind of truth that he taught was that everything's related to everything else. How I re respond to an earthquake is going to be related to how I have in the past or how elevated my fear system is. It's going to depend on uh, the warming of the planet. It's going to depend on uh, uh, the amount of the... Um, amount of well, pollutants in the air. I don't know what causes an earthquake to happen when it happens. Uh, but I definitely don't feel like I get to run the planet. And that everything that happens has to do with everything at that point. I just read a, a, a new book called... Um, I'm, I'm going to mention it today just because I won't be back next week. It's not quite. Oh, it is out. It's a new book called uh, Signal Fires. And it's by Danny Shapiro, who's a good friend of mine. And I just reread it. I read it a year ago in galley form, and I just reread it again. And it's a story about an event that happens in a small town in upstate New York that and had the consequences of that event in everybody's life then and after people an event that happens on a certain street in the middle of the night and uh it's a it's a gripping novel it's wonderful uh I read it last night and uh couldn't imagine that I was surprised to find that I reacted as dramatically as I did the first time I read it because it's really a splendidly written novel but it, I, if it if I, I was thinking does this make a point dharmically it does the point it makes is that every single thing that happens really has sequelae not just on the person that it happens to but the people that they're connected to and the people that they're connected to and the people that they're connected to you think about that I find that so important if I'm going to think about um, about being active in this world. I'm just thinking we've been here a whole hour and we didn't meditate. So I'll just say this and then we'll sit a little bit more and then we'll do some more stories. 
that I remember thinking about uh, there are two terms that are used uh, in, um, it, it, they're probably Pali or Sanskrit. Uh, the, the terms of uh, hiri, H-A-R-I, and otapa, O-T-A-P-A, but that's spelling it in Roman letters. Hiri and otapa have to do with, they're translated as moral shame and moral dread, which sounds terrible. So they're, uh, but they are part of the Buddhist uh, canon. And they have to do with one of them means the awareness of, uh, the awareness of consequences, uh, the awareness of the, that every single thing that you do can have, uh, will have consequences proximally and distal. So they talk about proximal karma and distal karma. That what I do has an effect on my family or whatever. What I do, whether or not I recycle has an effect on the whole planet. Uh, so, and but that everything has an effect. And the other part of it um, is that you don't know whether the effect that you're going to have by any act is going to be a good effect or a not good effect. And you can't tell. I think that's the moral dread one. And I remember reading that and, and feeling so touched by it in some Buddhist text at least 20 or 30 years ago. And I thought moral shame, moral dread, everything matters, every single thing you do could inadvertently be causing pain. I thought, and the only way out from this is not to do anything. And I thought, no, because that could also, that also has sequelae. What if I don't vote? Every single person, uh, you know, there are things that we can do. We can vote. And if people significantly don't vote, everything will go one way or go the other way. So here we are in this difficult situation of knowing that every action could cause untoward, undesirable sequelae, but inaction could also be causing, and that we're we're bound if we can have a uh, an impact on the world, have to do something. Maybe that has to do with the line that I read to you from that story that I wrote a long time ago, 15 years ago, probably. That if uh, the the um, the antidote to saying, well, anything I do, it could have a bad effect. I'll have to not do anything uh, is countered by having a mind that's set on may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. If the intention of all my acts is that all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, I might do something that's not helpful in the end, but not purposely. That would have to be something that, if I say to myself every day, some some um, some variation on, may everything I do be 
for all beings and for their well-being, then maybe something won't be for their well-being, but I won't have done it. I will have made a mistake in thinking. But to purposely wish ill, that must hurt very much in the mind. You want to do one more story and then sit? Or you want to sit? Or what do you want to do? Let's think. I want to look at some of the stories that I put. Okay, so this is a story. This is a story that I, I thought I would tell you because it happened two days ago. I was looking out. My, oh, it's the same as this is. Probably the same. I think it's the same as the Agapanthus. I was looking out of my kitchen window where I stand at the sink. There's a window. I'm looking out of the kitchen window and I have a, a, a small box that's three feet off the ground in which I grow all the flowers that I grow because of the pandemic the um drought you don't want to use water so i have a i have a 12 square foot 12 no yeah i guess so three by four is 12 square feet garden kitchen garden so it's got a few herbs mostly it's got a few flowers in it and in the middle of it i recently got uh from a catalog uh a metal pole with three pronged feet that stands in the middle of it. And at the top, like five feet up, six feet up, there's a hook. And on the hook, you hang a bird feeder. And the bird feeder has a, two parts. It has a plate on the bottom and that, that has a, a pole sticking up in the middle of it onto which you put a cone of bird food, compressed bird food. And on the top, you put another one of those brass plates, two brass plates holding a cone of bird food with a cage of wire that goes between them so that only little birds can go in there. And the big, big blue jays or something that's a big bird can't go in and eat only the little birds and they go in and out through this cage wire and i i see them all day long there are birds going in and out and they're so busy there and i love it it's four feet in front of my face and i'm washing dishes standing in the kitchen there's all my birds going in and out my birds i'm just noticing i say not like the birds that are California birds or passing by birds. So I look out the other day and there's a rat up there on the rim of the bottom dish eating away at my bird feet. And rats have uh, nails so they can climb up a tree. But this is a, a, a metal pole. This rat must have climbed up my high metal pole and sitting on that dish and eating away. So you see it's similar to the agapanthus. And I get ready to bang on the window, get out of here, rat. 
and you finish the story. Who's going to raise their hand and finish the story? Somebody has to do it. Go ahead. The only people I would feel prepared to call on because they're my friends is Brahmini and Jashoda. And they can't mind it. Jashoda, what is the moral of that? Oh, no, there's Lisa Marie. Okay, you don't have to do it, Jashoda. <laughs> Lisa Marie, what's the moral of the story? I was going to say something else. Like, well, how does it end? It ends. She turns around and you can see she's a nursing mother. Um, and 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 your heart goes out, which is very hard for me to do around a rat. <laughs> um, well, maybe even the most difficult things to love or deserve to be loved. Oh, that's a nice thing to say. That's a lovely thing. What else to show to do? Were you all ready to say something? No, there's, there, there's Ellen. She wants to say, go, Ellen. I didn't want to... Uh... Come in again if other people wanted to talk, but I think there was a pause. So I would just say about this story that it, it strikes me as there are some creatures that are more deserving than others that we do that in our minds. Like we, we want to feed a bird, but not a rat. And yeah. all those kind of distinctions and discriminations that we make in life that are really false. Why shouldn't a rat eat also? <laughs> <laughs> Coming from New York, I say that also. <laughs> and I love that. But, and the thing is, there, there's a several parts. Maybe it'll turn out to be a really important story. First of all, why shouldn't the rat hole also eat? I am not in charge of deciding who in the world eats. And uh, it's not so much is a rat more or less worthy of eating than the doe who's eating my agapanthus. But how does my mind feel when it's thinking, get out of here, rat, you know, it, you know, as, as when it says, oh, help yourself. Okay. You're such a clever rat that you made it up into against all odds into my bird feed. I should maybe you're a super great rat. Who knows? Maybe you'll figure out something in the rat world. Victoria, what? Yeah, well, I was, it's it's sort of like the last comment, um, and it's what I wanted to say about the the doe and the um, the the baby deer that um, we are conditioned. And I often think when I'm doing meta practice, um, I think about like all living beings, and then I try deliberately to think of the ones I really don't like, like mosquitoes and rattlesnakes and cobras and um, cockroaches and stuff like that, that, um, you know, and, and with the doe and the baby deer, psychologists say that, um, that from an evolutionary point of view, all babies of all species, um, look cute because otherwise they wouldn't be nurtured even by their own parents. And so I thought, um, I was afraid to say because I didn't want to make it sound like I was judging you for like deciding once you saw the the baby deer that oh this is wonderful help yourself <laughs> but I think we're all um yeah like like uh the share just before that we're we're somehow conditioned that some beings are more worthy in, than others and of course to answer your question the feeling in the heart because it is like meta practice if we include the beings that we normally wouldn't we, for for whatever reason, we wouldn't feel compassion towards. 
then we really feel a spaciousness and expansiveness that's all inclusive. And then it's really healing for us and for hopefully for everyone that encounters us. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you particularly because the, the line about when it comes back to how do I feel a spaciousness about, you know, uh, not having anybody that's outside of my field of concern. I remember years ago when I was on a many times I'd be on a, on a, a meta retreat, we learned a certain kind of chant. It's a rubric, really where you, uh, in the course of a week or more of a loving-kindness practice, wishing well to yourself, to your mentors, to your best beloved family people, to your next online people, to your next online, to your hairdresser, to your dentist, to uh, the people that you recognize who are the crossing guards on the corner of the street, to all beings, uh, including the people that you have some aversion to in your life. And then it goes into the second stanza that says, all beings, all living beings, all creatures, all individuals, all things in existence, all, um, all um, human beings, all, all liberated beings, all, uh, all, all, all devas and brahmas, uh, all human beings, all those in existence. Uh, and I thought that I often think to myself, why are we saying this? It's a, you know, it's a nice chant, but we already thought about our enemies and our not so enemies and the people we know and the people we care about. Because the point is, all beings, can I get my attention out of myself and into the world? And recognize that I share with everything that's alive, this space, this world. I really would rather I have more, more, uh, more birds around my house than rats around my house. But, you know, uh, it's not about forgetting that for various reasons I'd like more birds around my house. But what I, what this practice is about is not wishing that more birds move in and more rats move out. It's about teaching my heart to be in a spacious place so that it's not irritated by the presence of other beings. That's what, whatever they are, teaching my heart to be in a loving place was what's it about, which is in the end for my benefit. That's the important thing to learn that, uh, uh, the first line, I don't, I, I don't know if I remember telling you this, because I recently discovered, well, I'll start the story this way. When I began studying with Sharon Salzberg uh, in 19, really it was 19, 1985, uh, 1985, she went to Burma to study uh, meta meditation with uh, Upandita, who was a Burmese teacher of some distinction. And she stayed there and she practices for us new practice of repeating phrases of goodwill over and over and over again. And you would go down through your, your best beloved and you're next to the best beloved and the people you kind of like and your uh, people you recognize all the way through, all the way down to the end. 
I'm going to tell you something in the very beginning of this. And uh, I think that what you discover, or what I discovered by the end of that, is that it it wasn't so much that you wanted to, like sending emails to the whole world or going through and finding out if your heart still had something uh, of resistance in it towards your ex-brother-in-law or somebody else. It's about discovering really once and for all that your heart in loving, helpful mode feels the best of all. That I want my heart to be conditioned to kindness. That's the most important line I said this all morning. That's what I want from my practice. I want from my heart to be conditioned to kindness. Uh, I think we all want that because when it is, it doesn't make distinctions like may my heart be kind to everybody, but not my former brother-in-law or not this one or not the other one, because then you have to make, you have to be constantly on the alert that this not be my my former brother-in-law or my something, 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 or this person who has this political opinion that I don't share or this other person. Because, not because my thinking ill of them is going to cause them to fall over. My thinking ill of them is going to close my mind and tighten my mind and make my body and mind less comfortable. That is ultimately for my own benefit that I that my heart says, all beings are all beings are heir to their own karma. That's actually a recitation that people do when they're trying to cultivate equanimity. Every being is heir to their own karma. It's the most important thing, I think, in, in all the teachings. When I first heard it, I thought, well, that doesn't sound very nice. Everybody's like, you got what you deserve, yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound right. It sounds unkind. But what it really means is people are the way they are because they are, because of how they grew up, because of what happened to them. They didn't, I don't think, really don't think that people get up in the morning and think to them some morning or some, sometime in their life and think, okay, now I'm going to make things bad for everybody. I mean, unless it's some really pathological thing happening with their mind. People with normal functioning brains don't do that. We don't wish ill. Uh, we're by and large, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We're by and large congenial animals. We're herd animals. We like we like to hang out with people. We congregate. There are very few people who choose a life of being totally a hermit. Most of us like to be with people. We go, how you doing? How you doing? We like to hear people. We read newspapers to hear how are people doing? What are they doing? Uh, and I think it turns out that uh, somebody said that to me and this to me in a talk yesterday on some call I was on yesterday. They said, do you remember that book about everything I learned uh, that was necessary I learned in the kindergarten? Remember that? Do you remember what you learn in the kindergarten? That's an important thing to know. Who remembers? Barbara, you remember? I do, because I taught kindergarten for many years. And actually, what we used to say was, 
you get what you get and you don't have a fit. Oh, that's good. And that's kind of it, you know, because the fit is what makes difficulties. <laughs> that's a really, that's a very fantastic way. You get what you get. We don't have a fit. The other thing that I, that the person reminded me about, what was his name? Remind me, the the guy who wrote that. Um, everything I learned, I learned in the kindergarten. Uh, I anyway, uh, Robert Fulgram. Robert Fulgram, there you go. Like among other things that you learned in the kindergarten is hold hands when you cross the street. Right. Mm -hmm. Lie down and take a nap after lunch. (laughs) Cookie and a glass of milk makes you feel better. You know, there there are things that you learn in the kindergarten that are good to know uh, all your life. But holding hands metaphorically as well as actually, I think about that. You hold hands in your life. In my family, we mostly do when we walk around with somebody as adults. I walk around with my adult daughters. I don't know if my sons want to hold hands with me. They're, like, they're doing it more because I'm old. But uh, I always held hands with my mother when we were both grown. Uh, it's nice to be in connection with people. So I come from a family that touched that way. But I think we can mentally be holding hands with the whole world. And as soon as you say, well, everybody except all those people who vote the other way, or everybody except all those or those, then you have to remember who's on what side. And it, it mostly because it clenches up your mind. What I'd like to do, because we're going to soon run out of time and we will have not um, had any contemplative time for today, is first let's sit and then we'll come back. Is this interesting to you? Because I think this is the most interesting thing, how we have certain stories, why I have the stories that I have. Um, Because we don't get born with stories. We learn the stories. Let's decide that we're going to sit for 15 minutes. And and the the questions that... um, We'll go back to the questions of what stories... Is there a story that changed your life where you saw something and you saw da 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 da? Yeah, I I I could tell you one. I'll tell you one. Prepare yourself to tell a story. Could be Goldilocks. Oh, I was going to do this with everybody. Let's try to do it. Then we'll sit. Who doesn't know Goldilocks and the Three Bears? I checked. It seems to be a multinational story. Los tres orsos. Everybody know, do not know Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Everybody knows Goldilocks, right? So what's the moral of Goldilocks? All over the world, people tell their stories. Goldilocks y los tres orsos. Everybody tells a story. What 
Why do people tell their children Goldilocks and the Three Bears? You don't know the story? Well, you do know the story. Carlita, should I call on you? <laughs> oh, boy. Honestly, I, it's funny. You're just like, why did we tell that story? I, I of course, remember hearing that as a kid. Tell but... your children the three, the three bears. Uh, you know, I'm sure I read that storybook to them when they were kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember as a kid thinking, why was she in their home to begin with? <laughs> that wasn't her home. And I thought it was a bit presumptuous of Goldilocks sitting herself down at a table and having other people's food. That's what I remember thinking as a kid. Uh, but yeah. But, yeah, but the, so that's one of the things. Don't go in other people's houses because it doesn't work out well. That, so that could be what doesn't have to be. It's all profound. So don't go in other people's houses. It's a cautionary tale. What else? Think about it. I see Brahmini has her hand up. Go Brahm, where are you? <laughs> Here I am. Well, I was thinking, I often think about that because I think life's always like that. It's either too hot or too cold or just right, or the bed's too soft or too hard. And it just tells the story of, like every condition in our life, you know, um, you know, it's too cold. It's too hot. Put it, you know, I feel like that with our husband. It's too hot for him. It's too cold for me. It's too this. And, <laughs> and then I think about the story and it actually uh, makes me laugh because isn't that what we all do all the time? At least I often, you know, find myself doing that. But when I can see that, I can actually have a sense of humor about it because it's the human condition or a condition. So that's what comes to mind for me. I think that's great. Uh, I, I think that's great. I couldn't do better. I maybe add on one other. So somebody else that told, <laughs> let's hear Goldilocks. This is, uh, internationally, people tell Goldilocks. Well, let's go back to the uh, really... Um, the one about, uh, first of all, the mind easily finds troubles with things that it's the, 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 the mind that encounters, uh, but it's not this. It could be a little bit this, a little bit that. How frequently do we say, ah, oh, you know, this is good enough. I'll just take it just the way it is. It's a little cool, a little hot, whatever, but it's okay that the mind often wants something else, wanting seems to be a human built-in condition. I could improve on this a little bit. See, I can't, I don't sing it that well. See the whole world over, there's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a... There you know, Ellen. Go ahead. What's enough? Satisfied mind. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. And that the Buddha would say is the cause of all suffering to begin with. We don't say, wow, it's another day. I woke up. I'm alive. What a gift. You know, it could have been otherwise. I could be dead. But I woke up. I'm alive. I'm breathing without restrictions. You think about it. It's an amazing thing. So that we could always fix it up a little bit. People also suggest sometimes that you tell Goldilocks story for just the reason that... uh 
uh, Carlita brought up, what was Goldilocks doing in other people's houses? <laughs> that it's a way of saying stay out of other people's stuff. It's not, it's not yours to go in. Bad things will happen to people who go into other people's houses. Um, And why do we continue to tell them to our children? Maybe we don't. Oh, there goes the show to what? What I wanted to say is I like to focus on there's always something just right that happens also. So besides it's too hard or too soft or too big or too small, there's also just right. And I like to think about those moments in our lives that are just right. And that's part of the mix as well. Yeah, it is. It is. Very good, very good. And you can decide what to focus on. Jamal, what are you going to say? It seems like uh, part of things being just right is being in balance, not being too much or too little of anything and having that sense of balance. That that sounds very good, which means if, if you want to trans, it, translate it out to what's the bigger story, what, what are we left knowing? Well, we should wait, see what's the bigger picture. So far, what did we learn? You should wait, see the bigger picture. What variation of a nursing mom is involved in this? What, what iteration is uh, uh, the universality of this? Um, which way to look at this picture so that animosity does not arise in me. This is a piece I was going to say before, and then we're going to sit with a certain kind of a focus. To have a mind that does not get caught in negativity. To have a mind that has equanimity in it. And say, whoa, this is happening. Let's see what happens next. To have a mind that can rebalance itself. Because uh, not to have a mind in which difficulties do not arise or dislike does not arise. To have a mind that doesn't get blown away by the difficulty or the dislike or the aversion. Because that you can't have that. You have to have a nervous system that tells you the traffic is careening around the corner here. Let's wait for the light to change. I mean, we really have to think about what's going on all the time. But to think and then operate out of a balanced mind, that's really the whole thing. Get a grip until you can see clearly. Maybe that's the whole instruction. Because if you saw clearly, you would see that that's the best way to feel. However, because if you saw clearly, you would have compassion on everybody. Compassion on the deer that's just marching along, feeding herself and taking care of her children. And the rat as well. And the political operatives who think that they're doing the right thing, however deluded they might be or not be, 
that everybody is operating according to a story, a library in their mind that says this is good and this is important. It's important. The most important thing is to triumph and win. Maybe they have that library. Maybe they have a library that says the most important thing is to share. The most important thing for for me, I think, is to not be in an adversarial relationship with anything. Uh, but the, the, I, I think probably because of uh, my age and the age of many of my friends, everybody's got something at this point their knee or their hip or their back or their front. <laughs> I see people all <laughs> either nodding their head like to say, what are you going to do? Or uh, nodding their head, yes, that's true. But to not be in an adversarial situation with it. This is what happens if you have the luxury of getting old. The parts don't work so well. You say, this is it. This is how it is. It couldn't be otherwise, but I wish it was, but it's not. To not be fighting with things. So when I started, this is a story I started to say, and then we're going to sit a little bit. The, uh, the, uh, the line I learned from Sharon to practice on was, uh, may I be free of danger? May I have mental happiness? May I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being. And I recently came upon uh, what I think was the line before my teachers, Sharon and Joseph, began to teach that, was a first line that said, may I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. And I think that that makes a crucial difference. I don't know why the enmity slipped out. Maybe because it didn't fit in the, in the, in the stanzas correctly in Pali or Sanskrit. But I think the, the line that I think about is, may I be free of enmity. May I not disdain this person, this moment. Earlier when we were talking, I had the thought, and I didn't say it at the time, it just went out of my mind, that one of the stories that I heard that changed my life, uh, maybe this is a continuation of stories I heard that changed my life, was comes from Frank Ostaseski, who founded the Zen Hospice Program in San Francisco some decades ago. And he told the story of sitting at the front foot of the bed of some person. A uh, man in the bed is dying. And uh, Frank is sitting at the foot of his bed. And on the other side of the foot of the bed is the partner of the man who's dying, his long-term partner. And um, the partner says to the dying man um, something like, Tim, we had a lot of good times together. And Tim says back, 
I'm having a good time right now. I heard that story. I see a number of people who did like that. And I remember that story forever. Because I think that that's, a, you know, maybe the most important story. That if I'm present in this moment, especially a moment where two people that I love who are looking after me are right there, that if I can be present, then I'm content. Think about if I use my final moments to be thinking, oh dear, these are my final moments and I won't have you after this. Missing the final moments. I love you. I'm having a good time right now. I'm having a good time right now. I think I, I, I'd really like to be able to do that. And what gets in the way of having a good time, of thinking it ought to be different. It shouldn't be like this. It should be another way. I think may I be free of enmity means may I not hold anything in enmity. The fact that I'm including the fact that I'm dying. I think this is very hard to do. I'm not suggesting that I'm ready to do it. I need more time to practice. But if I can do it, I think that would be the way to do it. There was one Zen woman teacher, I don't not sure who it was in the last decade, who is said to have said as her final sentence in her life, thank you very much, I have no complaints. I love that. I think it would be a great thing to be able to leave this life and say I have no complaints. I'm having a good time right now. And it's very hard to do. You know, I've done be much easier. Um, there's some, there's some Native American. That was the basis of it, but I don't remember it exactly well enough to say who said it. You know that my family is well. The the crops for this year, the corn is picked. Um, we're provide. You know, we're ready for the winter. Today would be a good day for me to die. We don't get to say, I've taken care of everything and everything is good, so today would be a good day. But someday we're going to be dying and to be able to say thank you very much. I have no complaints. Uh, I remember when 9-11 uh, happened and uh, people left messages on uh, phones. They they knew they were going down and they go, your cell phone will work, you know. Uh, and they called uh, and left messages. And they all were, the ones I heard were all on the uh, variations on. My plane is going down. I'm not going to make it. I love you. Take care of yourself. Take care of you. Take care of the children. Nobody ever left a message like, I never really liked your mother or your cooking was really bad or anything like that. You know, You don't say that kind of thing. You say, take care of yourself. I love you. Thank you. I think we all want to do that. I hope this is not too macabre. Is it too macabre? <laughs> I think what it is is what it's all about. I want to know how to do it. I don't want to say, I am not saying these days, when I die, I want to be ready to say that. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. I want to say it now. 
I want to say it now, uh, and be politically active and you know, make the phone calls and do everything I have to do. I don't want to be mad at life or anyone because when I do that, I cause pain for myself. I think that's what Dharma is about. Don't you? Or do you? Okay, seriously. Let's sit. I like this better than the idea, let's sit for a half hour. Let's sit. Let's sit for 10 minutes. And think of something that happened in your life that you learned a story, that you learned something that made you the kind of person that you are, or added to the kind of person that you are right now. That's just because we're meditating to become wise, not just to become quiet. Sit comfortably, think to yourself, may the best story I've ever thought of about what makes me the kind of person I am now come to my mind in the next 10 minutes. And then just breathe. Don't look for it, it'll come up.
So here we are. Come back if you're there. Come back where we can see each other. So what did you think about? You think about that you thought, I won't forget this. Rosie. Well, the story that changed me, I would think, looking back, that came to me, um, was in, actually, it was almost 29 years ago to the day. I think it was November 3rd, the 1993 fire. We lost our home. And um, I remember going to work that morning. You know, I'm a teacher. And, um Uh, It was just a regular day. And, you know, in talking about how things can change and uh, we kind of think things don't change. But, um, you know, that day, you know, I went to work and um, then our house was gone. So all of a sudden, something that is so solid as, you know, this is happens in California, but, you know, that day it happened to me and you get the lesson that in a second things can change things that, you know, people can die or houses can disappear. I mean, if I'd had a shopping cart, I wouldn't have had anything to put in it. You know, it's just, um, you learn the lesson that things can change. And when I look back, on that story, um, so many people came to help friends and, um, I always, and I think it's normal. We all like to be the helper, you know, but this, this time I wasn't, I wasn't helping someone, you know, I was the one and, and I felt sort of uncomfortable, you know, with people, you know, being, feeling sort of needy and, you know, just this is not the way I like to be. I like to be in control and, you know, generous. And and then I realized uh, the another lesson, well, uh, we're all in this together. It doesn't matter who's helping, who's being helped. Um, and it was just the connection of these friends. And when I look back on that um, time, you know, and I get choked up, Uh, or tears come, it's not because of the fire or losing the house, but it's of how kind, right? I'm I'm getting choked up, how kind everyone was, you know, it was just astonishing, you know, and so that's, that's really what counts, the, the kindness and the compassion that has stayed with me from that story. Thank you very, very, very much. I wrote down those three things. What a terrible thing to have happened. And here you are. Here I am. <laughs> I say, the Buddha said there are three, three characteristics of experience. It's impermanent. It's interrelated. And um, there is suffering 
and when you think about it, that, and he said the most important thing, he said this the last thing before he died, transient are all conditioned things. Everything is always changing. And he said, that's what you really have to know. And they really learned it really, really. And that um, everything is interrelated, that, uh, that that firestorm happened because of the drought and because of everything else that went, that that precipitated it. Uh, but, and people are kind and kindness counts and it makes a difference in terms of, uh, being able to remember among other things, in addition to losing everything that, that was inanimate, that animate things respond with kindness to difficulty and, and all people suffer together. So in a sense, it's all three of the, Three things that the Buddha said you had to know because of this, that, that there is suffering when people are uh, not able to ha- help each other and feel connected. And things are changed, changing all the time. You had in that experience. I saw somebody else. So thank you so much. Oh, were you? Did you have your hand up? Were you going to say something? I thought somebody else had hand up. Somebody. They or Vanessa. I I had a, a different story that came up altogether, um, in that I did this um hike when I was 34 in Hawaii by myself, and I was definitely not prepared for it. And um I had a moment on the hike where I really faced like the end. <laughs> And just like a very narrow walkway and the ocean and the Nepali coast. And I just thought like, no cell phone, you know, this is like 15 years ago. And um, I was just terrified. And I, um, more than terror, I mean, I just, I can't even describe because it was so deep in the moment of fear. Um, And I made it to the campground And I spent the entire time I was at the campground dreading having to go back. And I embroiled all the people in the campground into my fear. And they all were coming up with other ways for me to get back. You know, I could take a boat or somebody could kayak me. And I had this huge drama happening of all this community involved in my fear. And uh, the day came, I finally, you know, hiked back. And the whole time I was thinking, you know, where's that place? Where's that place? And I walked right by it. <laughs> and that story comes up for me all the time because we all, I get afraid of new things all the time. But I just remind myself that I had a terrifying moment and then I couldn't recreate it. <laughs> so first of all... Um... Thank you very much for telling that story. I could have somebody else comment on it. By the way, I have hiked that Nepali coast thing. It's terrifying. <laughs> but I didn't do it alone. <laughs> uh, because what, for, you learn about it, that the mind makes things out of other things and responds to it in a certain way. And, 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 I don't have to reiterate it. I was obvious what it meant. Jeff, were you going to tell? Thank you very, very much. Very much. I like this. Think of your story. Jeff, go tell a story. 
Uh, the story I'm going to tell is uh, in October of 1989, um, I was just getting off of work. I operated heavy equipment for the local government. I was just getting off of work when the Loma Prieta thing let go. And um, we were immediately uh, called back to work and loaded up the equipment and were dispatched into Oakland to help with the freeway collapse there. And I was on that scene for the next 30 hours. And I, it was way before I even knew how to spell Buddha. Mm -hmm. But every time, very often, I should say, very often um, when I think about Anicca, the impermanence of all things, I find myself going back to that day. Those were really big, heavily constructed human artifacts that yeah like that and um, the giants and the a's were in the world series i really wanted to get home and have a beer and watch baseball <laughs> but i ended up extracting or helping with the extraction of of human beings who had also not made it to the world series that day thank you thank you dear barbara this is not my story, but at the memorial service for the son of a friend of ours, the father stood up and he said, all life is the stories you tell yourself. And these are the three stories that I can tell myself about how my son, that makes me able to go on. And I reflect on John's wisdom of being able to say that um, frequently. It was a very powerful lesson that you it's it's what you what you tell yourself is um, what the truth is. And you have to make it one you can live with. I'm, I'm telling I'm writing that that what you tell yourself. Because it. It, because it so resonates with what I was saying is our mind is full of editorials. So mm -hmm. to have an editorial that really is helpful to you is, um, that's very touching. Thank you very, very much. Ellen. Um, this, this, uh, is a story about a moment that I consider the turning point in my life, the before and after story. Uh, 25 years ago, I was diagnosed with a terminal illness. I uh, was given as much treatment as possible, and then the doctors told me basically to go home and die, that there was nothing more they can do for me. I went home and lived by some miraculous reason, um, and I haven't been sick all these years later. This is 25 years ago, and I think of this... Uh, Whenever I get discouraged or angry or feeling feelings that, I don't, that are troublesome to me, I think of the fact that this is my second chance. And uh, I remember that at that time I prayed and I said to my friends that I wish I just had the ordinary problems. And so now when I have the ordinary problems, I remember that that's my mantra. You wanted the ordinary problems. The ordinary problems are a blessing. And here I am. Oh, thank you. First of all, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm just writing down the ordinary problems. 
are a blessing. Because in the long run, I'm here. Yeah. I think about, you know, getting up in the morning and say, here I am, another day. Who knew? Who else? I, Barbara. Um, it just hit me. Somebody was saying the stories that you make up are the ones you can live with. And if we think of that in terms of people whose stories we don't like, it's easier to understand them. Thanks. Sense to anyone? No, it makes sense to me. Just in terms of these are the stories they need to be telling themselves. Exactly. So it, it can make you more accepting of those people that you totally disagree with. I, I very much like uh, the, uh, uh, the lesson I learned from Gwen Gordon years ago. She said, when people ask me, how are you, Gwen? I always say I'm fine. No, she said, I don't say I'm fine. I always say I couldn't be better because I couldn't be. And it always struck me as that's a very, very good piece of information. When I see somebody doing something that's really not acceptable to me, I think to myself, this person couldn't be better. They couldn't be other is what it really means. They couldn't be other. Like too bad that they couldn't be other because they're suffering, but they couldn't be other. I don't have to add to their suffering or mine by rejecting it. Susie and Marty. Oh, thank you again. Um, I was so inspired by Vanessa's story about the hike in Hawaii. And I just wanted to comment, you know, that, that funny sensation when you're driving somewhere for the first time, it appears to take a certain amount of time. And then when you turn around to come back, it always seems a little bit shorter mm-hmm. and a little bit easier. And so maybe it's the same way with fear as uh, Vanessa was saying. So once you've gone through a, say a portal of fear, if you do it again or come back, maybe it lessens a little bit. So that's a very hopeful message for me. Well, thank you very, very, very much. I love this that we all have something to say. Go, Bromany. It's Ace. Hello, it's actually me. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Um, I have been listening and I was thinking about my own experience from the last five years where we've had... uh, a very bad car accident, a fire, and a heart attack. And I'm, and I tell people when I'm not feeling right, I give myself a little zets <laughs> right in my head and wake up because I'm here. And if you're not having a good time, you're missing the point, mm. you know, and that's really how it is for me. So <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And there's Jeff over there. I was just applauding and appreciating the great wisdom of the ace man. <laughs> that yes, thank you. Oh, it was an applause, not a raising the hand. Here's red. You made me like I was hoping for an answer today because you spoke about enmity, and we have been going through a lot for the last four months at work. The collective was someone who raises that. And I've been thinking today, like, I just miss my parents so much because they just never complained or they were always kind and decent, you know, born in 1926, a different type of scenario. 
and you make me realize I know better. Like I have a guru, I have a, I have teachers, I have mentors. So how can I return my mind to a congenial space rather than keep on going on the trip of what they're doing? I don't know. That's a lovely word. I'm going to write that down. Congenial. You said it. (laughs) (laughs) You're the one who taught us. Uh, I love it. Because I think about that uh, Mr. Rogers is congenial, you know, that we're doing this together, folks. And how are we going to friendly, congenial, friendly together? Thank you very much. Thank you, Sally. We're about to run out of time for today. But I had a really good time. Did you? Let me know if you had a really good time. So there you go. To go look on my other pages to see because I did it. It was a different way of teaching, but I, you, and you all did it. Good for you. So, because I, you know, I don't, people will, have been saying, I'm going to wait till we go back to normal. Maybe this is the new normal, but it's not bad. Especially if we all talk to each other, then, then the only possible thing that's different. There's nothing when we were back, when we were back in Spirit Rock in that big hall, it was lovely because we could actually see each other or give each other a hug sometime. But not all of us, not the people who live far away, not the people who are in Southern California or up in Portland. They can't just suddenly jump up and be there. So I am beginning to really, really value that we can be in each other's lives from wherever we are. So (laughs) let's wish each other well. Uh, May you uh, have a lovely November and Thanksgiving and uh, and December and uh, Happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. And I'll see you, God willing, and uh, the creek don't rise uh, on the 28th of December.